Wow. All right. Uh, I just, uh, late, late, late Thursday night, uh, Michael and I got back from a pastor's conference in the Pacific Northwest. I had not been around so much flannel, plaid, and coffee in some time. Um, yeah, if you're in the pastor circle, you, you kind of know uh, that's just the uh, jersey, apparently, <laughs> is to wear that. Hey, we're going to pray, uh, and then we're going to get into this this morning. Father, you're so good, and just inviting your peaceful presence into this place, that for this moment, we could curb our anxiety and our fears and our worries, and we can embrace the hope that you have given us and that we would be changed, that that would be instilled in our hearts and lives in a chaotic world, in a personal chaotic world where we feel it personally, not just corporately or globally, but it gets into the very cracks of who we are. And we ask that by your spirit, we could be a calming presence in our community, in our neighborhood, and in our household, in our workplaces, and that we could have deep rest and peace in you. So I pray that you would instill that in us this time. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Hey, just so you know and are aware, we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're taking a three-week hiatus to talk about the church, specifically our church, past, present, and future, all right? And so we're going to have this break for the next three weeks. It's something Michael and myself have had these conversations been going on for about, I don't know, 16 months of what this would look like. And what I want you to hear and know from us this morning is that over this past year or so, uh, we've spent a lot of time seeking the face of God Uh, specifically concerning what does kingdom look like? It's why we're going through Matthew and praying that it grows in our hearts and in our lives for all of us who live here in Redmond. And we've been asking this question a lot. What does it look like for Redeemer's Church? What does seeking God's kingdom look like for Redeemer's Church? And there is so much over the next three weeks that we're going to unpack with you. There is a lot. I mean, I could probably sit up here for about four and a half hours, but there's probably some afternoon football finally on that you want to get to, right? So I won't, I won't do that to you this morning. There's a lot I want to share, and I'm looking forward to sharing, and there's a lot that's going to just be unraveled as we pull on this thread over the next couple of weeks. And we were really tempted to call this a vision series. Uh, If you've been around me much, you know I hate the word series when it comes to church. We don't do a lot of that here. Where we're headed into 2020 and beyond. But the matter of the fact is, right here, right now, um, is this church, which as you're going to hear this morning, that's been around for eight years, has a whole lot of new people. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to just talk about where we believe we are headed but to spend some time in where we are now and to even back it up a little bit more and where we've been. And so that's how we're breaking this up. Now, this morning, maybe you felt it in culture a little bit. Um, Maybe you have noticed or haven't noticed, but the church throughout the world is exploding in a good way, isn't it? Uh, You've probably heard reports of countries that have been 
ran by Muslims and have a strong presence of the prophet Muhammad and there's these Christians that are coming to faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. And it's really exciting to hear about the underground church movement that has taken place in China and the advancement of the gospel that's going on in India. And there's so many great and fabulous things that we're celebrating as the American church for our brothers and sisters across the globe. But here in North America... The church is on the chopping block. The church is on the chopping block in North America. The nature of the church is this question, this idea that we're going to talk about, and it would be really easy for us to look at 1980s and 1990s and say secularism. That's why the church is on the chopping block. Or, as Mark Sayers would say, modernity modernism, all right? If you know Sarah, that was an Australian accent, all right? (laughs) Modernity, okay, I don't got that. That's not who I am. Or post-modernity, I would be a snobby, snobby Australian, right? It's on the chopping block, and it's because of these movements. And the reality is, as much as I would love to have an excuse and a reason to blame secularism, which is failing us, Modernity or postmodernism. I think we have to look a little bit inward as to why the church is actually on the chopping block. This comes from Ronald Rollheiser in The Holy Longing. Michael sent me this quote this week, and it's so good. Certainly, in the Western world, an ever-growing number of people are questioning the validity of the church and are seeking to find God. Moral guidance and to express themselves religiously outside the walls of Christian churches. More and more people are simply divorcing their search from God from involvement within a church community. The prominent, the prominent right now feeling right now amongst Christians and non-Christians alike is the big C church, not just the little C, our local ecclesia gathering of the saints. The big C church has let us down. You may or may not read church headlines, and some of the bigger ones will come flashing across, you know, CNN or your news feeds or USA Today or whatever it is, but people are looking at the church and they're saying all of these leaders, time after time after time, tend to be letting us down, breaking our hearts, and as Carson so eloquently taught, I think it was like four or five months ago, there is just a lack of trust in leaders in the church. And we can point to case after case after case of why that's happening. And not only are you questioning, can the church be trusted, but is it really making any difference in your lives? Like, some of you have been coming here for eight years. Are you a kinder, nicer, more gentle, loving kind of person? Is the church making any bit of difference in the lives of the people that come here and sit week in and week out? Is it producing the type of people we actually expect it to be producing? And this question remains, why do we even do this? I love Matt Chandler. He's like, get a boat. It's a better hobby if that's all church is for you. Why do we even do this? What are we even doing? And the reasons working against the church are very obvious. I mean, historically, if you just grab like Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley, it's the easiest church history book you'll ever read. 
it sort of has an ugly past, doesn't it? I mean, some guys had this great idea that we're going to conquer with swords. Like the total antithesis of what Jesus told his disciples. Absolutely opposite. So the crusades were birthed and inquisitions happened. And people squabbled over how to take communion and Christians were killing Christians. I'm not even kidding. And the Anabaptist movement rose up and then there were people against the Anabaptists because they believed in baptism after regeneration, not from when you were an infant. And the church was clashing with each other and clashing with the world outside of it. And when you look at church history, it can have a bit of an ugly past. Even here in America, Joshua Butler wrote a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet in which he unravels some of those difficulties dating all the way back to Joshua and the Canaan conquest into what took place in white people coming to America to promote, even at the cost of violence, this Christian God who loves them as long as they convert. And there's people wrestling deeply with this tension right now, researching, thinking, processing, having dinner conversations. And furthermore, right now, the church can feel at times not like a safe space. Is it really a safe place to find, learn, and seek God? Because at times it feels like the church has fostered too much exclusivity, spiritual abuse, corrupt hierarchy, especially in light of just minorities, marginalized people, your income, your social status, Churches put up a lot of barriers for females to be involved, sexual orientation, and we're simply questioning everything going on in the church, while the church also has an obligation to remain incredibly orthodox in its beliefs and the truth that it presents. And so we've got this conundrum going on in the church world. And in an effort to be relevant, seeker-friendly, or just straight-up less awkward. (laughs) Churches are following all kinds of formulas for growth, to get numbers, but it's abandoning the maturation of souls. You understand that? Can I tell you something? I'm friendly. At least I think I'm friendly. Maybe I'm not. (laughs) I'm, I'm all good with, like, seeking people and being friendly, but not at the risk of your growth, not at the risk of discipleship and maturation and maturing in the things of Christ. And yet this is what we've turned to, and what we've seen is so often is the maturing of a disciple lasts about five years. And after that five years, we just kind of let people drift off into oblivion. And ironically, this term evangelicalism, it means a lot of things right now, but really does it mean people coming to Jesus? It's typically in reference to transfer growth. Like my church kind of sucked, so I went to this new church that didn't suck as bad. And that's how we got here. That's our church story. And if you don't like that word, you can go to another church because you'll just tell them you didn't like that word and that's why you left. Okay. Transfer growth. Or we've been more successful in building these huge walls up with the community around us and just becoming this isolated group of people. People are questioning and people are wondering. And here, not just in the Western church world, but in Redmond alone, how many of y'all, got my boots on today, 
How many of y'all have been born and raised in Redmond? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's like um, 8% of the room. <laughs> How many of y'all who grew up here have noticed some changes in your town? Mm-hmm. I've only been here, well, I've been in Central Oregon 18 years, but I've been in this area, Redmond, for about eight. And it's changing, right? And Bendites are moving up and Portlandia's coming in. California has made its way. And there's an exciting, yeah, woo, you're here, I love you. You made my house go up tons in value. I appreciate you so much. I do, I'm being serious. It's rad. So, so, so we're like, what, what do we do? This small town, I mean, the first time I visited Redmond was 1993. My friend Randy Lidkey moved here. His dad took the job in Prineville as the chief of police or something high up like that, chief, sorry, of, of the fire department. And this, like, literally, he's like, a horse got out in our town, and it closed the street down in 93, okay? <laughs> Things have changed here a little bit. <laughs> What's going on in my community? I hope you're ready to settle in, because my clock says 16 minutes, and I'm going to abuse that. What are we going to do with that? People that are young can't afford to live here. They're in their 20s and they take off and they have to go somewhere else and they're starting families and they're trying to figure out life. And this town's having an identity crisis. Oh, and let's not forget COVID-19 surfaced a lot of ideologies that people have. Like You probably didn't know 90% of everybody's political values in your church until COVID-19. You're like, I know everybody's political values now and where they sit. Leaders and congregations are giving up on each other. Can I say that again? Leaders and congregations are giving up on each other. Leaders have hurt church members. And can I flip that? Church members have hurt leaders. We forget that the people that sit up here have a heart and a soul and it beats and there's tears and there's much prayer and love and energy that goes into pastoring a church. And so we have a crisis on our hands this morning. And as a Canadian sociologist of religion says, his name is Reginald Bibby, that poor kid growing up, puts it this way. People aren't leaving their churches. They just aren't going to them. They're just not going to them. Once thriving, hip, cool downtown churches are now great pizza places where you can get some craft beer. I recommend Grace and Hammer. It's wonderful. (laughs) They're concert venues, the concert halls, and they're places just to kind of hang out. And the strangest thing, and Michael was kind of sharing this with me, is what's so strange about today, spirituality has never been more popular in Western culture. It's never been more popular for the average person. People want something beyond themselves. They want something that's transcendent. They want to connect their lives to something greater than who they are, the supernatural. But they just want to work it out with their yoga instructor or their social media feed. Or they want to let their Enneagram tell them who they are more than they trust their pastors. Why? Pastors have been pretty busy about branding themselves, writing their books, trying to figure out how to make their church grow rather than being present, taking time to listen, to care, to pray, to suffer, to cry. We, church, 
are in a crisis. Why do we even do church? Well, turn to Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to read what might seem like an obscure passage to you for this topic, but I think it's incredibly important for us all. If you don't know, Israel has been making their way from Egypt where they were in bondage and they were slaves. They've had some pretty incredible moments where God has given them Torah, law. He has given them the Ten Commandments and he has shared with them the people he wants them to be and they're making their way towards the promised land and they've crossed over. And Joshua chapter 4 says, when all the nations had finished passing over the Jordan, so the 12 tribes of Israel is what he means by nations there. The Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and I command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. So much like when they left Egypt and the Red Sea there parted and they walked through it with God's protection and then it closed in on them. They're now entering into and they had entered into the promised land and there's a similar scene where the priests put their feet in the water and the waters were held up and they're once again having this crossing over moment into the promised land. And from that very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you, lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes, the people of Israel. That may be, listen, a sign among you. So what? When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Like, Hey, dad. Because every seven-year-old goes through that phase, right? Hey, dad. Hey, dad. What does this mean? Why are these stones stacked here? Then you shall tell them the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. It's a memorial. What's it a memorial of? It's a faithfulness of God kind of memorial. This is what God has taken us through, and then it identifies who we are as a people. Memorials are incredibly important for us. Knowing what God has taken us from and where God is taking us to. Having this firm foundation that we're rooted in and come back to. And this morning we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about just three basic things for us. God's story and how this church is rooted in God's story. Because a lot of you are new and there's only so many evenings in a week my wife and I can get out. I'm going to tell a little bit of my story and then we're going to talk a little bit about our story, which is Redeemer's Church. Now, I want you to think about this idea of a memorial. Um, When I look down at my left hand, I have a memorial on it. I have a ring on there, this finger. This is the okay finger, my daughter says, all right? (laughs) At least no fly is going to go in my mouth this time, right? (laughs) Gosh, if you were here, you know. So so I look down at this, and I got to tell you something. Um, In 13 years, I think, hun, I don't know, 12, something like that, you know, they just start blending together. 
a lot has changed since we've made some promises to each other. In fact, I was only gone for about 48 hours from my kids, but we went out to dinner the next night, and my son is looking at me. He's like eyeballing me, and he goes, what's that white fur doing in your hair, Dad? And I was like, son, first of all, I've only been gone two days. <laughs> like, did you miss this? But, but yeah, like there's some white growing in here now. And that's, that's because of you, son, right? You're putting this white hair on me today. I get that. Um, when my wife married me, like there's never been a lot to work with right here. But she said yes. And we made some promises. But I got to tell you, it's not going to get much better. Okay, so what she's seeing now is the pinnacle of how I'll probably look for the rest of my life. I can guarantee more wrinkles, less strength, less hair if I'm going the route of my father and grandfather. And and I can just kind of promise there's going to be these changes that are going to happen in our marriage and in our lives that are physical changes. And I'm not the same person that she married when I was 25. Some of my ideals and thought processes, those have changed and we've grown together. And there's some things she realizes I'm never going to change. And there's some things that have changed. But one thing has remained the same is we have this memorial stone on our fingers. Like, yeah, we made this covenant that we're going to love one another, care for one another. This is who we are. Our family has changed. We've moved like five houses, which is nothing in comparison to some of you. We've had ups and we've had downs and good and bad times. But we know the promises we made And we know the trajectory that we're on because of that, regardless if I will ever change. And you see, when we look at the church, and a church plant specifically, we need to continue to remind ourselves of the covenant, the good things, and the things that we have built this church on. Because as you grow as a church and you go from 30 adults and 45 kids to... (laughs) 100 adults and 200 kids downstairs, not quite, but like 80, right? Things change. Things change. And we begin to wonder what is going on around here and are we rooted? Are we grounded? And so a moment like this is stacking memorial stones for our church saying, this is who we've been. This is what we're built on. This is our foundation. I was recently taken out to lunch and just because people see things going on in the church world and they're like, are we becoming this neo-progressive evangelical church? And I'm like, don't associate any of those words with me except for church. (laughs) Like, Because evangelical is even muddied today. I don't even want that word thrust upon me because of the differences that it's brought about in our culture. Like, no, maybe I got a degree from Liberty University, but I ain't quite there with them on their term of evangelical at times. That's not bad or wrong. It's just a difference. I need you to hear that. Did you hear that? And we're trying to look at what's going on. And I also want to root you guys in some really truths of who we are. I don't know what I'm going to cut out this morning, but we're going to talk about God's story. Stories matter for several reasons. Every person in here, look at me, every person in here has a story, okay? I know many stories in here. They have pain and joy. They have difficulty. They have struggle. They have highs and they have lows. Every organization 
has a story. Churches, businesses, countries, whatever. Everything has a story. Now, why? We use stories to make sense of our lives. If something happens in your personal life, an event, something great, something exciting, some kind of tragedy, what we do is we tell a story to make sense of what just happened. Yeah, there are these raw facts, real events that take place, and emotions that stem from that. But to make sense of what we're dealing with or what we're feeling, we tell our stories. Paul Tripp talks about, I'm going to kind of butcher this, but every human is hardwired to tell stories. Why is that? We're all meaning makers, trying to make sense of our lives through the stories we tell ourselves. We do not live our lives based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to the interpretation of those facts. So we can get two people in the same room hearing the same thing, but not hearing the same thing. It's happened, right? Right? you've raised kids or in your marriage or at a workplace situation. It's not our raw experiences that determine our lives, but the meaning we make of them. So, for example, someone doesn't like you, and you're with a friend, and their name comes up, and instead of, like, dying to self and being a little self-deprivating, you decide to bash this person to make yourself look great and justified. It happens. Not condoning it, but it happens. Get brought up, and you say, that person and I, we don't get along. What's the next question they ask? Why? Why don't you get along with them? You tell a story or a couple of stories in order to explain why you and -and so-and-so are no longer friends. This is your explanation to why things are the way that they are. It could be they promised to do something or not do something and they let you down. Or they said some things that were untrue or were true and you did not want them to get out about you or another person. Or they just looked at you funny. (laughs) And we're not friends. Look, I got a 10-year-old daughter. I've seen when we walk up to the pool and other girls are like, "Mm -mm -mm," and I'm like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Like, you are not going to look at my daughter that way. (laughs) I'm going to come in there and help that situation. Tell stories. Why our reality is the way that it is, and they are the truths that we believe. And the stories we tell ourselves are incredibly powerful. That's why we need to tell ourselves the right story. We need to tell ourselves the right story. So as a church, we are always going to be rooted and grounded in the story of God. We believe the Bible is one unified story leading to Jesus. That's Bible project language, not mine. It's way better than my language, so go watch it. Listen to them. They're phenomenal. Our desire at Redeemers is to tell God's story every single week because we believe in God's story is the only story you're going to make sense of your life. Postmodernism got rid of the meta narrative. There is no grand overarching theme narrative is what they say. We're much more depicted, directed by the many little narratives that we ourselves determine as truth. And it's wrecking us because we have nothing to hang our hat on at the end of the day. And when the church begins to play into this and lose sight of truth and God's truth, because we're afraid we might offend somebody, we've missed the meta narrative, the overarching narrative. So we desire to tell God's story every single week. Everett Ferguson put it this way in the assembly of the church becomes conscious of itself, confesses itself to be a distinct identity, shows itself to be 
what a community or a people gathered by the grace of God, dependent on him and honoring him is. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. The church is telling God's story in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. In so doing, the church, listen to this, makes itself visible to the universe around it. Ephesians 3 says, why did God join Jew and Gentile together in one body? Go read Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. In the local church, as we assemble together around King Jesus, it has brought a very, very different kind of people together. When we think of the church at large, worldwide, we see all these different ethnicities and languages and nations. We see different skill sets. We see different socioeconomical status differences. We see people coming together from all around. And the only thing, the only thing that unites them is the fact that Jesus is in the room. And you pull him out of the room, this was gold. You pull him out of the room, and guess what? We don't get along. We don't have things in common because King Jesus is there. That, that is the story we want to tell. And every week we tell the story through different threads, whether it's kingdom or temple or genealogy or the big creation, fall, redemption, new creation. There's all these biblical themes and we see that God's story is not at risk. That is leading, that God is directing and that God has a trajectory in which he's taking us. Church, this is the story that we tell at Redeemers. This is one thing that we are absolutely grounded in and not changing. We, we believe in God's story, his scriptures, and we retell that story week in and week out to his glory. Two, Brett's story. <laughs> I will jet through this as quickly as possible. I grew up in a family that loved and served Jesus and went to church 19 times a week. It's true. It's very true. And there's some good in that, and there was some very self-righteousness in that, and there was a lot of work orientation to that that was never taught or presented that way. I went to churches that taught grace. But for me, growing in Christ was related to the amount of energy I actually put forth in it. Not, not like good, like trying to walk in the practices of Jesus, but just doing stuff for God. Uh, first and foremost, I grew up in a very charismatic church. So uh, I was in the assemblies denomination growing up until I was like nine or 10 years old. Here, here's like my memories of that. I went to camp as a 10 year old. I brought this friend with me. Don't bring friends that don't love Jesus to camp. It's weird. <laughs> I mean, you should bring friends that don't know Jesus to camp because they shouldn't make it weird, but they made it really weird. And this guy, after burning his $20 bill in front of a bunch of like nine and 10 year olds to show that money doesn't matter. I'm like, the idiot. Anyways, so after he does that, they start talking about in that tradition how you need to receive the gift of tongues to actually be a Christian. I'm nine. He's like 10 or 11. And the room is thinning out. And all these kids are like speaking in tongues to their neighbors and to their counselors. And they're getting let out of the room to go to free time. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, well, shoot. I'm, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do this. But I'm going to rot away until hell comes if I, <laughs> I can just sitting here waiting for this thing to come on me. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And my friend was there for the girls. And he's like, dude, just say something in gibberish and get out of here. So I did that. And they like <laughs> pat me on the back. And I'm like, yeah, you must really love Jesus. You're 10 and you have the gift of tongues. And I'm like, 
this stuff's freaky weird. There was this old lady on our Sunday night gathering. She spoke in tongues every single week at our church. And I'm like, oh, man. So we left a denominational church for an even lower church of non-denomination. I'm very well-versed and experienced in low church. By that, I mean, like, not a Presbyterian, not an Anglican, not, like, high church uh, of that model or statue. And, and I grew up in these churches, and I got to tell you something. My experience there, I look back on some things, but they loved the scriptures, and they loved Jesus, and they gave me a love for Jesus. And at 17, they gave me a Bible and told me I could start teaching junior hires. And there's six of them. And then in five weeks, there was about 85 to 90 of them. And it was just influence and Jesus and burning everything I ever taught in Romans. (laughs) Because you should not give a 17-year-old Romans to teach and to share. And God just began to work. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, so I went to Bible college, but not like Bible college where you'd actually learn anything, but like low-level, non-accredited Bible college, and it was good. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Like, I had some great times there, but it just showed me the deficiencies that I had, and I wanted to pursue ministry. It's sort of who I am. I just had this passion to teach the scriptures, to share Jesus. After coming from a mega church, I was in a church plant in Maui for four months at Bible College. I was in a church plant in Portland. I was in a church plant where I spent nine years as a pastor in Bend, and I've been at a church plant here for eight. I love community, and I love people, and it's as messy as I'll get out. There's been high highs. One of my favorite stories is going to drop a story. There was this couple that was divorced. She spent some time in my office. Her husband, ex-husband, came to know Jesus, and I baptized and remarried them in the same day. Yeah, that was rad. It was rad. And they continued to walk with Jesus. It's not just a great story. It's, and they continued to walk with Jesus. And there has been great moments that have gone on in this place. And there's been hard things that have happened in this place. And I acknowledge that because human leadership inevitably always fails us to some degree or another. Because I am not, we are not Jesus. But I'll tell you, I deeply, deeply enjoy pastoring, loving, and caring for you guys. And I've had to redefine what success is because when we planted this church, I was 29 and thought that this church was going to go from zero to a thousand like that. And God took the proverbial two by four behind my knees and just broke them and showed me, you're not king. You're not as great as you think you are. And you need to learn to serve out of humility. And you need to learn to serve out of your weakness and not your strength. See, these have been good things that God has shown me personally. And I could share more of my story and more of my wife's story, but time won't allow for that this morning. But you need to know a little bit about who I am to understand the ethos of this church and why we exist and that I am not an A-driven kind of person. 
I'm the kind of person where if there's an alpha in the room, I'm more than happy to give them their platform and sit back. But I'm going to lead through persuasion. I'm going to lead through community. I'm going to lead through listening. And that's who God has created me. And if you're looking for an alpha kind of leader, I will reference you to those people. And if you're one of those people that come in here like, Brett, we're going to grow this thing to 10,000. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not my end game. I want to care for your soul. That's who we are. And it's messy and imperfect. And I fail because I'm one amongst a hundred. Our staff is small, but God is working. Finally, our history, and I will blitz this. Story is not about me, but it's where my story intersects Redeemer's story. After pastoring for nine years in Bend, I just had this stirring to go plant a church. They tried to ship me off to Corvallis, and my wife and I went there and went, nope. <laughs> not going to go to Corvallis. And, and I had an opportunity where a church in Spokane was really interested in me, and my brother sat me down and goes, Brett, we don't want to fully lose you. We would love to send you just down the road. Why don't you plant a church in Redmond? I'm like, I have been praying about that. So I did. And I had this awesome team. I posted a picture of it not too long ago. The Smiths were a part of it, and the Atkinsons, and the other Atkinsons, and probably another set of Atkinsons, and another Atkinson. They were all there, right? If you don't know, this church has a lot of family that's all involved and around, and they serve faithfully, and they continue to serve faithfully. Why do we want to plant a church here? It's like 30 churches here. It's probably more than that. Since God's calling on my life, step out to be a church that teaches the scriptures, loves Jesus, and builds community. It's that simple. And it's not that other churches in the area weren't doing that, but to have another outpost in which the glory of God can be declared on a street corner is not a bad thing. When church planters come to this town, I encourage them and cheer them on because it is not about me and my thing. That was part of the whole getting myself broken by God, though. Let me tell you that. It took some time to be okay with that. And this is what God has taught me. And so Redeemers is birthed. And why Redmond? Because we saw the writing on the wall. People were going to move here in droves. This place is too good of a secret to be kept. And they're going to come from all over. Who could have predicted COVID? They're going to come from all over and work from home. And they need community. They need places to gather and to worship and to be an outpost for King Jesus. And so we're a church with a Protestant background, with a little bit of Calvary Chapel, then some non-denominationalism, then a little bit in the A29 movement to where I'm kind of like, I don't know what I think about all that. We just love Jesus and teach the Bible. That's, that's what we want to do here at this church. And we have church government, and we have bylaws, and we have other leaders that we communicate with, and we have people that I chat with about other problems that arise from even outside. I have personal mentors that I talk to as well. And in our gatherings, we've always taught the scripture and sang songs, done music, communion, baptisms. These are things that we hold near and dear to who we are. And while we've kind of moved from me being a generalist to just handling any and everything from the things that spill to the day ins and day outs to more of a specifically honed in on different things that I'm participating in the church, God is leading, directing, and moving us. So when you ask, what is this church about? For example, when you're on a road trip and you see a yellow M sign, what does that mean? 
yeah. <laughs> right? That's a billboard. You've been here for eight years, five years, three years. When you see redeemers, or are, what do you think? Here's what we hope you think. We may or may not grow. It's not about numeric growth. And we'll figure out those problems if they happen. Yes, we want you involved in this community, serving, loving, being compassionate to your neighbors, maybe even corporately at some point in those ways. We want to be an evangelistic church that shares the good news and the gospel of Jesus. That stuff is important. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, commanding them to obey the things that I have taught you. Yes, we are a church, have been, are, and will be that makes disciples. As we share every week, a group of people committed to following the way of Jesus, following Jesus, spending time with Jesus, going and doing the things that Jesus did. We are a church that is rooted in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there will come to judge the living and the dead. We're going to talk about judgment in three weeks or four weeks. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now listen, the Holy Catholic or Universal True Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That is what we believe at Redeemer's Church. Do you believe in a rapture? Do you want to go get some coffee? Because <laughs> I can talk about that. I wrote papers on that in college. Because I, yeah, I can share with you what I do or don't believe. We're not going to argue over those things. We're not going to argue over was the earth created in six days, gap theory, progressive evolution. Did God start the process and take his hand? We're not going to do that. This is what we believe. And we believe that scripture has its authority over us and we take our cues from it, not culture. Culture doesn't tell us what to believe about the Bible. The Bible tells us what to believe about culture. Can I just reassure this church that you've been here a long time? That's who we are. That's who we're gonna continue to be. And that's where we're going. We believe God's authority over our hearts and our lives. And we believe in relational unity. Theological unity, relational unity, where we come together as a church and encourage one another. If you want to talk more later, I'd love to. I have lots more to say. Let me finish with this. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversation, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. That, that, thank you, Paul Tripp, who the church is. What does this all look like? We've been talking about it for eight years. How are we going to accomplish this? We're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. Thank you for your people today who were gracious with me and gave me some extra time. Thank you for our children's workers downstairs who have their hands full. May many of those kids learn about, grow in, and love Jesus, and be changed by Jesus. May those kids be encouraged, and may those who teach be encouraged that they're sharing the gospel, the good news of Christ, giving them truth in a world that is chaotic. 
Grow us, change us, make us more like you. In Jesus' name.